right, this morning we're going to get right to it. Continuing this series that we are doing on the Ten Commandments. So today we are up to the third commandment. I say up to, but if you've been with us, you know we've been counting these down backwards. We started at ten and we're counting down to one. So, so we're on the way. And today we are up to commandment number three, which talks about the name of the Lord. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So we think about that and, and what, what the name of God means. You know, I mean, the, the name of God is revealed for us in Scripture, and, and we see that in different ways. So in, in our Bibles, in our English Bibles anyway, in the NIV translation that we use, whenever you see the name LORD in all capital letters, that is the divine name of God that is revealed in there. Or maybe you've heard of it the other way, if you know how God reveals his name, and, and you've heard the name Yahweh which is, is the Hebrew word for the name of God, the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 3. I am Yahweh, that God reveals himself that way. But this commandment, this commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, you know, the Old Testament Israelites took this commandment so seriously that they wouldn't speak that name. They would not say the name Yahweh. They wouldn't say it out loud because they were so afraid of breaking that commandment. What if I say it the wrong way? What if I misuse that name? So, so they, would, they would substitute something else in its place. So whenever the, the experts of the law or the Pharisees or the people would, would read or recite some of the Old Testament scripture, and they came across in there where it, it said the name of God in the scripture, they would not say that name out loud. Instead, they would substitute, they wouldn't say Yahweh, they would say the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord, but, but not Lord like we think of it, more like, well, think of medieval times, like Lord of the manor, that kind of a thing. That kind of Lord is what the Hebrew word Adonai means. So whenever they would read it out loud and they would come to a place in their scripture where it said Yahweh, they wouldn't say it because they were so afraid of breaking this commandment. Instead, they would say Adonai in its place. Fast forward several centuries to where it was translators in England who were making the King James Bible. So as they were trying to create the King James English version of the Bible, and they would come across this, and, and they were using the Latin version, the Vulgate, to, to translate that in at the time. And they would come across this weird part where, you know what, we're not quite sure what to do with this from the Latin because, you know, we, we know that from the old Hebrew it's supposed to be Yahweh, but they would always say Adonai, and which one is it? So because the King James translators didn't know what to do with that, they took from the Latin the consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai, not, not from the Hebrew, but from the Latin, and they mashed those together into one word. You know what that word is, the name of God from the King James Bible? Jehovah. Totally a made-up word by the King James translators of the Bible. True story. So they were so afraid of breaking this commandment to misuse the name of the Lord that they would say other things in its place to do that. Jesus, I think, hints at that when he gets into the New Testament and 
brings some teaching on this before us. So today, I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, starting partway through chapter 11 and going forward from there. So Luke chapter 11, and this is a bit of a longer reading that I usually do for a message, but, but there's so much going on in this story to unpack, okay? So, so a couple stories, beginning in Luke chapter 11 at verse 37 and going into the first part of chapter 12. Here's how the story goes. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. That was a ceremonial custom that all the Israelites were supposed to do. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful meetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. So so Jesus has been slamming the Pharisees, and then we read this verse. One of the experts in the law not a Pharisee, but like a Pharisee. One of the experts of the law gets up and says, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Those experts of the law. Look what Jesus does here. He doesn't skip a beat. He gets right back into it. Oh, you're feeling left out now then? So here's what I have for you. He goes on. Jesus said, And you, experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. And it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets. And you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts of the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered. You have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Now, the scene shifts to when Jesus is outside, but it's a continuation of the same theme here, okay? Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampled on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees 
which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear, in the inner room, will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before the synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A lot going on there in what Jesus brings to confront us with this whole idea of what it means to misuse the name of the Lord and what that looks like and how that continues to unfold is something that takes shape in our lives, in our time for people like us. So, so let's unpack some of this, all right? First of all, let's talk about the importance of names. Because it's a commandment that has to do with the name of God. Maybe, maybe you grew up hearing this commandment and thinking about this in ways where, where you went away thinking, well, it, it, it has to do with swear words, right? I, I just should watch filthy language, make sure that I don't say anything inappropriate. Particularly swear words that have to do with God or the name of God. That It's just talking about maybe that and nothing more. But this commandment has to do with the name of God, and, and we should remember the importance of names. Okay, so first of all, remembering that in the Old Testament, names have meaning. And you find that all throughout the Bible, that, that we all have names, and maybe some of you know what your name means, and maybe you don't. My name is Tom. I'm formally Thomas. The name means twin, but I'm not a twin. So I, something that, and it doesn't carry any family heritage, right? It's not that my dad's name is Thomas and my grandpa's name is Thomas. It, it's just something that my parents picked as a name to call me. Maybe you have names like that too, right? Maybe you don't even know what your name means. Maybe your name has significance because it's a family name and it was passed down from parent or a grandparent or someone else who's significant in your family. But in the Bible... All of those names mean something, and people knew the meanings of those names. It was important what the names mean. So the names, then, would be more than something that you called someone. It was something that would define character and reputation. It would tell you something about that person just by their name, by who they said they were, 
by what they called you. So when, when Moses comes to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 3 and God shows up there in this burning bush and they have this conversation, at some point in that conversation, Moses asks the question because God is saying, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Egypt, back to Pharaoh, and I want you to bring the people of Israel out. Moses stops and he asks the question, but what's your name? So, so if I go back there and I say, you know what, this God has sent me to you, what should I tell them? Who are you? What is your name? Do you see what Moses is really asking there? Not just, what do I call you? But he's saying, tell me something about who you are, God. Tell me something of your character and your reputation. Because whatever name you call yourself, that also says something about your character and your reputation, the meaning of that name. And so God there in Exodus 3 at Mount Sinai reveals his name to Moses, Yahweh, I am. But it, it's, it's an I am that has no verb tenses, right? It's not past tense, it's not present tense, it's not future tense, it's all of them together. So maybe you've heard it is translated as I am that I am, or I am who I am. I think a more accurate translation would be something that says, I am who I always was, who I always will be. The name of God defines his character and his reputation. Particularly that God says, you know what? I am who I always was, who I always will be, I am a being, a presence, right? That I am present with you as I always have been present with you, as I always will be present with you. Active, ongoing presence that God reveals his name to mean that. His character, his reputation then is one of active presence, continual, ongoing presence with his people. That's the importance of the name. So then, let's talk about what it means then to misuse the name of God. More than just inappropriate swear words. But if, as we said, that God's name refers to his character and his reputation, then, then anytime that we get that wrong, we misuse his name. Anytime that we don't refer to God's character and his reputation in a way that's truthful, that we misuse his name because God's name refers to his character and his reputation. So when we say things about God that are not true, then we violate this third commandment. Maybe you remember, and it, it still takes place from time to time, that there's, there's this church, uh, Westboro Baptist Church, which every now and then makes a place in the news because they go around and they protest at funerals, particularly for funerals of fallen military people. And, and they show up and they protest at these funerals and, and they hold up signs, signs that say things like, God hates gay people sometimes in much more vulgar language than that. It's a violation of the third commandment because it's saying something about God that's not true. 
God doesn't hate people. God reveals himself in Scripture as the one who created people in his own image. Everyone. God loves people. God hates evil, but he loves people. When we say things about God that are not true about God, we misuse the name of God. You see how that works. But beyond just saying things, it has to do with acting as well, that speaking and also acting in ways which violate God's character is misusing the name of God. When we live as though these attributes of God are not true, then we would also violate that. So not just in what we say, but, but also in what we do. Remembering that God's name, remember Yahweh is a name that means that he has this active and ongoing presence with us and among us. So when you and I live in ways in which we fail to recognize God's continual, active, ongoing presence with us, his people, then we misuse the name of God. When I live as though God were not present at all, if I live in ways in which deny that God is even here, that God is present, or that God is active, that God even cares, when we live in ways that violate that, it is a misuse of the name of God because God's very name means active and present with his people. You see how that works as a misuse of God's name. Now, uh, maybe we should give some explanation around this too because if you read scripture and you get into some of the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of lament, maybe you scratch your head a little bit and think, wait a minute, wait a minute, but what about all these Psalms that say, God, why have you abandoned us? Why have you left us? I mean, if, if God's name means active, continual presence with his people, then, then, then why, is, why are these, these psalms in which the psalmists seem to say the opposite? God, where are you? Where have you gone? Maybe this is a good distinction to make, that, that you find some of these psalms of lament which give a condition in which, you know what, people can express their lament. But if you read those psalms, read those psalms of lament, there is also in there words of trust. And words of hope. Where the psalmist would write, God, you know what? I'm having a hard time seeing where you are right now. God, this is not the way I thought life was supposed to be right now. But I will trust. But still, I will put my hope in you. God, I don't see evidence of your, your active, ongoing, continual presence. I don't see it anywhere at the moment. But I'll keep looking. I'll keep trusting. I will keep waiting. You see how that works? So please don't go away from your thinking, you know, whenever you've had one of those moments of doubt, moments of doubt of, so if God's name means active, continual presence, and what if I don't see that all the time? Does that mean I'm violating this commandment? There's plenty of expression in the Psalms where we see God's people living through that exact same thing of having those moments of wondering, God, I'm having a hard time understanding or knowing how it is that you're with us right now. But I will keep looking. I will keep waiting. I will keep trusting. I will keep hoping that there's a place for that, a place for that that 
rightly expresses who we are as God's people and can allow that. This commandment, though, goes into a, a territory in which we see few other commandments do. Right? The, there are two out of these ten commandments that have a condition attached to it. We saw one of them already. Right? The commandment that said, honor your father and mother, and the condition was that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This commandment, it's Exodus 20, you find a condition as well. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, the condition, because the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Jesus seems to pick up on that in this passage, doesn't he? This is where he mentions what maybe sometimes we have come to know as the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So you see that condition in Exodus 20, verse 7. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And, and from verse 10 of what we read in Luke's Gospel today, anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And, and now we're stuck. I mean, this is one that there are people who lose sleep over this. What if I've committed that sin and now I'm not forgiven? What does that even look like? How do I know? The church has wrestled with this one before, right? I mean, th this is not a new issue. There are different ways of interpreting this that we have come across in ways that maybe some are helpful, maybe some are not. There are some who would look at a commandment like this and say, you know what, any single instance of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is grounds for eternity in hell. Some might say that. And that's the worry, Right? If I've ever done that once in my life, now it's game over? There are others who've interpreted this to say, you know what, any single instance of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is grounds for punishment by God, but not an eternity in hell. So still something where God holds accountability, but it doesn't mean game over. John Calvin, and we in this church, we sort of follow in the tradition of John Calvin and the Reformers. Calvin says it this way. Calvin says that you know, the, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not a single occurrence or a one-time event, but rather a lifetime of rejecting the Holy Spirit. That's what Calvin had to say about this unpardonable, unforgivable sin. That those who would live their life in such a way that says, you know what, I know the Bible says that God sent his Holy Spirit to reside within us, his people, but I want nothing to do with it. Holy Spirit, don't even come. You're not welcome in my heart, in my life, in any way. Those who would live their entire life denying the presence of the Holy Spirit given as a gift within their life. That's what Calvin would point to that those who want nothing to do with God's presence in their life at any point ever along the way, even having been told the gospel, even knowing and hearing the message, but still respond with rejection. That's what Calvin would point to, as one in which, you know what, if you say no to the Holy Spirit coming in and, and regenerating your heart, accepting that forgiveness and grace to God, how can you ever come before God then? Is what Calvin had to say about that. So it's not one of those things like maybe those Old Testament Israelites who 
tiptoed around eggshells and wouldn't even say out loud the name of God because they were so afraid of breaking this one commandment, this one rule. It's not like that. That God reveals himself to us in a way which invites the presence of the Holy Spirit into our lives. That we see God working through us. Now then, like all of these commandments that we've looked at, that we've seen, not only is there this negative prohibition, thou shalt not, every single one of these commandments also implies a positive affirmation. So, what is it that we should do in this then? I know I should not misuse the name of the Lord, but what should I do with the name of the Lord? Here's where that catechism that we looked at earlier is helpful, right? That catechism phrase that said, use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe so that we may properly confess him, pray to him, and praise him in everything we do and in everything we say. So it's more than just avoiding saying the wrong things about God, but it's also an active saying and doing and living the right things about God, how God reveals himself. So how do we take this today? Right? What, what's the application that we can pull out of this? Well, in this passage that we read for today, Jesus seems to come pretty hard on the Pharisees for one sin in particular. And he calls that out in them, right? Hypocrisy says, you know what? You people who are religious people struggle so much with hypocrisy. It it was in those stories that he told, right? You've got the cup and the dish that you wash the outside, it looks all good on the outside, but on the inside, not at all. There's still work to be done there. Hypocrisy. That you say one thing and do another, and he points that at the Pharisees and And here's the thing, all right? Maybe we walk away from that and we say, yeah, but that's the Bible. Those were the Pharisees. They didn't even know who Jesus was. That's not me. It's not us. But I think the message is still there that Jesus is saying, you, religious people, struggle with hypocrisy, saying one thing, doing another. So the question, I think, is a question that's real before us today, a question that can ask, well, what is it about my life that that boldly testifies to God's character and his reputation? How am I speaking and living in ways that affirm who God really is, how God really reveals himself to be? How does that take shape in the lives that we have? Because hypocrisy is still a very real thing. I've, I've referenced before surveys that come from the Barna Research Group. So Barna is an organization here in America which for several decades now has been conducting rather extensive surveys on religious topics in America. And, and so Barna does these surveys, and some of the surveys that they've done over the last decade have, have revealed why it is that people leave church or why people don't join a church. One of those surveys that had come out in the last 10 years shows that in particular, in the last decade, two-thirds of people who have left church, walked away from church, right? I, I accepted God, I believe the Bible, but 
I walked away from it all. I'm rejecting the whole thing now. Two-thirds of those people, the reason they gave, not because I stopped believing, not because something bad happened and now I just can't believe it anymore, not because of a problem with God, not because of a problem with the Bible, not because of a problem with the teachings or the doctrines, but two-thirds of those people said, it's because other Christians are hypocrites. That's why I left. That's why I want nothing to do with God anymore. The single greatest barrier for people coming to God in faith is not God, it's not the Bible, it's not the teachings, it's not the doctrines. It's us. It's you and me. That other people see us and they say, hypocrites. So there's something pretty sharp in this commandment that maybe should give us a bit of a wake-up, right? That should maybe tell us, you know what, this is serious, this is for real. That the way I live, the words I use, the actions of my life should reinforce, should testify to God's true character and reputation. That there's a prayer in this for us that says, God, may I live in such a way that that I'm not a hypocrite. That I actually, through what I say and through what I do, give testimony to your name, to your reputation, to your character. That last verse that we read out of this passage for today, so I read that long section, but the last thing it says there has to do with where we begin with this. Right, that it it ought to begin with looking in a mirror. I begin by looking at myself. That I begin by saying, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit into my own heart and into my own life. Because you know what? It's not my job to change other people. It's not my job to change the world. But as a follower of Christ, it is my responsibility to say, God, come into my life. Change my heart. Change my life. Change me so that I can live the way that you want me to. So instead of pointing fingers around at others, start by pointing at yourself first. What can I change? What can I do so that I don't misuse the name, the character, the reputation of the Lord, but instead let the words and actions of my life be a testimony to the character and reputation of God. All right, one way to do this, and, and I'll close with this. One, one practical application for how can you get through this. That last verse that we read today, when you're brought before the synagogue's rulers, authorities, don't worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you'll say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. How does that happen? Right? Where does that come from? How does the Holy Spirit teach you what to say and how to live about God? Let me just give you one idea, maybe for this week, that in your personal devotions, in your time with God this week, whatever passage you're reading, whatever verse is in front of you, ask yourself a question. What does this passage, what does this verse say about who God is? Name an attribute. God is faithful. God is forgiving. God is gracious. Whatever that is, find one thing in that. And, and you know what? Write it down. Write it down somewhere where that's in front of you all week. My wife has the habit of, of writing these things down and putting them on, on the bathroom mirror so that every day you're in the bathroom and you look in the mirror, every day there it is in front of you. 
in some way. Put it somewhere where it's going to be in front of you, whether it's a bathroom mirror or stuck on the refrigerator door, or if you drive a commute every day, stick it on the dashboard of your car, somewhere where you put that in front of you every day. Something that has a piece of scripture and names one attribute of who God really is through scripture so that that's coming into your life and you see it every day. Do that one thing. Do that one thing to keep that in front of you. Because how does the Holy Spirit teach you what to say when you should say it? When you put that in front of you. When you make that a part of your daily life. It's not some magic osmosis but the Holy Spirit reveals himself through Scripture. So when we put Scripture in front of us, God reveals himself to us. And we, you and I, then have that opportunity to take that step closer to God. Not in misusing his name, but in giving a testimony in what we say, in what we do, in how we live, to glorify God for who he truly is in our lives. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your word that you reveal yourself to be our triune God. Lord, we, uh, we confess and we're sorry for times when we have failed to give testimony to that, when we have lived in ways that deny who you truly are, in ways when we have misused your name because we have not lived or spoken in ways that acknowledge that truth. So, Lord, we pray today. We pray today that as you work through us, as your Holy Spirit works through our lives, that you would place in front of us that that one word for this week that gives an attribute of who you truly are, And may you, through your Holy Spirit then, allow that to guide what we say and what we do in this week so that our lives may be a fragrant offering, a testimony to you. Do that through us, your people, we pray. Amen.